This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com. So last week, Pastor Aaron, he preached about how how God gave this this detailed and elaborate plan um, of of moving forward regarding the building of the tabernacle and his interaction with the people and the priests as he's preparing to, to dwell with the people, right? So... One of the things Pastor Aaron kept on talking about last week was, was, was noticing the patterns, right? Um, so I'm going to do a lot of highlighting some patterns during this week that I, that I want you guys to, to notice. And as we've been going through this, during this time, we've been having and using this language of an imagery of, of marriage, because that's what covenant is, is, is about, is marriage. You see, God um, proposed to us, and, 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 and the, his people accepted the proposal, and these were the Ten Commandments. Those were the, the, the wedding vows, have you, right? And, and, and now, since he's planning to live with his bride, he's, he's having a home built for them from the ground up. That's the tabernacle where he'll dwell with them. He wants to live with them, right? Calls it the tabernacle, right? And, and he cares so much about the relationship and how the home will reflect that relationship that he takes his time giving the details to it, right? He takes his time. And, and Moses is away with God in an intimate setting, a relationship for 40 days and 40 nights representing the people of God. And this is sort of like the honeymoon after the wedding, right? Now, then we get to chapter 32, which starts talking about how the rest of the people of God were responding while Moses was away for those 40 days and 40 nights of representing them to God. So if you'll stand with me, we're going to read chapter 32, verses 1 through 6. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up! Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in your ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool, and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up. To play. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So we barely get into it and they break the first and second commandments. We ba- like we barely started this thing. You know, no other gods or no graven images. And, and, and it's like 
And a fear happens during the honeymoon. Now, I want to give some, some context so, we, so we, 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 we're looking at this properly. You zoom in on verse 4. It says, they, this is when they gathered together after the, the, the calf is made, and, and, and they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, it doesn't seem like they were intentionally seeking to worship another god, though that is what they ended up doing functionally. It doesn't seem like that, that was their plan. You see, back in the Near Eastern, um, ancient Near East days, what they did was um, they believed that their deities or, or, or gods somehow resided in or associated its presence with the physical object or person, right? A, a physical representation that you can see to communicate presence. Now, Moses represented a living, breathing, physical representation of God to them, and, and, and they haven't seen Moses for a while, so they literally take things into their own hands. And they form an image to, to represent God for them, and they give this image the worship that's owed to God. But as we start off, I want to say we're not too far from them. As a matter of fact, we're just like them. You see, we often take things into our own hands when God doesn't seem present because he's not moving in the way or time that we expect. That's us. That's our backyard. We often do that. We move on behalf of God that, and what we form or do, we call it a move of God, but oftentimes it's really an idol. We don't see what God is doing, so we fashion something that we can see. Not seeing what he's doing makes us think he's not present. The same thing happened with Abraham and Sarah. God promised that he would give them a child, but, but many years had passed, and they was getting older. And after a while, they start thinking like, oh, probably God isn't working or doing something. And they literally took things into their own hands. Right. We do this. But, but let me explain to you the madness of it all, right? The madness of it all. You see, they formed the calf because they didn't see Moses and he represented God. So it was like they could no longer see God's presence. But here's what they could see. The manna that God was producing every single day still. Yeah, the Moses was gone. It's not like he stopped producing the manna. Every single day, they're eating this manna that shows that God was there. Here's what else they could see. The mountain that they was next to had a pillar of cloud on it. That was right there. You see, sometimes we allow what we don't see about God to eclipse what we do see about God. And we start to think that he's not present. The everyday things that are right there in front of our faces, but the only thing I can focus on is what I don't see, what I don't know, and that starts to eclipse, and I start to think God is not there, but there's all these things that are showing that he is. You may not see how God is working in a particular situation, 
and we allow what we don't see to eclipse all the things that are right in front of our face. And this is what Paul is talking about. He, 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 he talks backwards towards them and forwards towards us in Romans 1, um, 20 through 23. And it says this, For since the creation of the world... God's invisible qualities, unseen, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made. So the people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Thus you have a calf. You start to think that he's not present He's not working or he's not moving and, and that he needs our help. And then what we do, we start to form idols. And, and the idols give us comfort because we think it represents God, but it rather represents our lack of trust in God. That's why this section we've titled The Rebellion, because that's really what's happening here. So... I want to spend some time looking at how God responds to this rebellious act of adultery on their, on their honeymoon. You see, God is, he's with Moses, and, and, and God turns to Moses, and he says, yo, Moses, you need to go check your peoples. Things change jobs. Like, yo, Moses, you need to go check your people. They wilding out down there. They wild, they, they, they're off the hinges. You need to go check your people. As, as a matter of fact, just give me some space. As a matter of fact, back up. I'm going to kill all of them. I'm going to start over with you. That's what he says. He says, no, you need to go check your people. They said, hold, hold on. I'm going to just kill all of them. And I'm going to start over with you. Hmm. Let's look at what Moses says when he hears this. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, oh, Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self. And said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised, I will give to your offspring. And they shall inherit it forever. Verse 14. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing to his people. God said he was going to kill them. And then Moses intercedes in prayer. And then God relents. And the thought that comes to mind as you're processing the Bible is like, well, hold on. Do we serve some psychopathic tyrant God that's a slave to his emotions? He, he, he just going off the edge. He just flip every, everyone's dead. Or do we serve a God that's madly in love and there's something much deeper to what's happening here? You see, during these chapters, we'll see much prayer between Moses and God on behalf of the people. And that's for a real intentional reason. 
first, what I want to talk about, though, is God's sovereignty in our prayers. See, there are times when the reason why we feel the urge to pray is because God has put it in our hearts to pray. Philippians 2 and 13, it says, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Why? Why would God move inside of you to pray? Because he plans to respond to our prayer. There's a big plan that's happening. Everything plays perfectly into his plans of inviting us to partner with him for the good of all. God is working something deeper. Not because he needs us to pray. Not because he needs our partnership to accomplish the task. But because he wants our partnership because he's a relational God. He's making space for us. It's like a parent who, who, who doesn't need his child to participate on a project but wants their participation. So, so, so that parent purposely reserves a part for that child to play in the grand scheme of it all. Son, this won't work unless you participate. And the parent has already planned the whole thing out. And the parent makes space for the child to participate, even though this isn't the most efficient way because it slows things way down. The parent can actually do it better themselves, quicker, without all the messiness to involve them. But the relationship is what's most important. So he lets Moses know what he's going to do. Why? So that Moses can pray. Why? Because he plans to relent. Why? The ultimate will of God. Everything that Moses quotes to God regarding God's promises are all tied to his ultimate will. God knows this. God is working something. And if what God plans and purposes to do, anyhow, this is what he's doing. The problem is this. They broke the covenant. That's not a light thing. They broke the covenant. You see, the rules of the covenant says... Let my blood be spilled just like the blood of the animal that was killed to mark this covenant if I ever break it. That's the rules. And they did it. And God is just. And if something doesn't go down, they forfeit these promises. Because of the rules of the covenant, they deserve death and God is just. Well, anyway, he relents, right? And Moses starts heading back to the camp with the Ten Commandments, and and he's with Joshua. And as they get near, they can hear the noise of the people worshiping the calf. And then Joshua and Moses have a really interesting conversation that I want to highlight. This is it. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of a war in the camp. But he said, It's not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. See, Joshua didn't hear the conversation between God and Moses because Moses was up further on the mountain. Joshua wasn't there. So he didn't hear the conversation about what was happening in the camp. So Joshua hears the singing and the dancing as they worship the idol. And to him, it sounds like war. And the thing is, he wasn't off. He was actually prophetic. See, there really was warfare happening. Even though they were singing and dancing, the warfare was spiritual, and Joshua could hear it. You see, we need to pray for ears that are in tune with the Spirit. We need to pray. 
See, if your ears are in tune with the Spirit, though our brothers and sisters are laughing and dancing and enjoyment, the sounds of idolatry actually sounds like war. Oh, Lord, tune our ears to you. That's how it is. Every time we, the people of God, choose something other than God, it's war. So they finally get to the camp and see things for themselves, and Moses flips out. Oh, man, all this time, we've been up here for 40 days. We got, I got the tablets, and Moses trips out, smashes the tablets on the ground, burns the calf, and grounds it in the powder, and then he makes them drink it with water, which was a foreshadow of the cup of bitterness we talked about not too long ago. It was unique to cases of adultery and connects to communion. Anyways... After this, Moses confronts Aaron since he's the one that built the calf. So let's look at that conversation because it's really interesting. And Moses said to Aaron, what did this people do to you that you have brought such great sin upon them? And Aaron said, let not the anger of the Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. They said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, let any of you who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me. And I threw it into the fire. And out came this calf. They just gave me the gold. I threw it in the fire. This calf came out and just started saying, worship me. And like, he forgets the part where he fashioned it with special fashioning tools. But, and out came this calf. Interesting take on the story. And then he's like, well, well, well it's, it's these people that you left me with. You know how they are. Man, this reminds me. It's sort of, it's sort of like Adam. Saying to God, it's, it's that woman that you left me with. You know how she is. You see, every sin we commit reveals the nature of Adam inside of us. They're all ripple effects of Adam's rebellion in the garden echoing in and through our lives right now. They all sort of remind us of Adam. Well, you got to read what happens next. Verses 32, chapter 32, verses 26 to 29. Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp. And each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the words of Moses. And that day, about 3,000 men of the people fell. Moses said, today, you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. First thing that comes to my mind is why in the world is this text here? I mean, I mean, if there was a text that I would want to skip over, pretend it wasn't really there, this would be one of them. I mean, imagine with me. The Lord says, who's on my side? And you're like, oh, bet, Lord, I'm on your side. And you jet to Lord, his side, and you're standing there. And then when you turn around, you look, your mom's is on the other side. 
Your brother is on the other side. Your sister, your, your friend that you grew up with is on the other side. And you're like, oh, oh, y'all didn't come? And the Lord like, all right, go kill him. This is unimaginable. I almost wanted to skip over this part because it's so hard to even fathom. And, and this is the part where people say, oh, man, he's just a cruel God. That's why I can't rock with the God of the Bible or, or the Old Testament. Just give me the New Testament God who, who hugs little kids and doesn't kill people by the thousands. But you see, you don't get the lamb without the lion, though. You don't get the, you, you, you can't pick and choose which part. And God is making a statement regarding the seriousness of sin and idolatry. Right. I, I, I want you to follow me here. He's making a statement, and I want you guys to see the patterns. You see, we would rather someone tell us about grace and how sin really isn't that bad so we can remain in our blissful ignorance as we cuddle with death because it's just so cute. We have no idea how far-reaching the devastation is. The entire universe impacted by it. All of creation groaning because of it. They had no idea how far things were going to spiral out of control because of this moment and how many times this moment will repeat itself all the way until today. They had no idea how painful cutting sin off can actually be. They had no idea how painful this whole thing was to God. And my goal is even slowing down on this text. It isn't to make it easier to digest. That's not what I want to do. I'm not trying to make God more manageable for us. But instead, let it sit on our chests. And even the tragic events that's currently happening in the camp is setting the stage for something else. I mean, I mean, I mean, God has a plan. He's really, really intentional. It's interesting that on that their first time breaking the covenant, 3,000 people die. And then in the new covenant, the spirit falls. And the first time the spirit comes installing the new covenant, 3,000 people come to Jesus. I'm telling you, there's something else that's happening here. God is doing something way more intentional. Let's look at chapter 33, and let me just walk through this. You see, even though God decides not to kill them, he's still heated. So he says to Moses, y'all go ahead. Y'all go up to the promised land, all right? I, I'll make sure everything is all good. As a matter of fact, I'm going to send my angel. He's going to protect y'all. He's going to wipe out all the enemies, and, and, and you'll have everything that you want. But I'm not going. I'm not going, because if I kick it with y'all... I'm going to end up having to kill all of y'all. And he was serious because he knows they're going to keep breaking the covenant. So he's like, y'all go ahead without me. I'll make sure you have everything you want. Imagine that. How would you respond if God told you, I'm going to give you everything you want? Your dream spouse, your dream job, your dream home. Oh, you'll have the perfect kids, and, and your health will be just the way you want it to be. You name it, everything you want. But you wouldn't have him. But you'd have everything you want, though. I'm just going to let you have it. Go, I'm just, I'm just going to let go and let you go out there and have what you want. I know real quick, they'd be like, oh, I'll be on, the God, on God's side. But, but think about it. It's presented in front of you. And I'm saying this is the worst-case scenario. 
Going back to Romans, this is what Paul is talking about when he says, Therefore God gave them over, that you have what you want, in their sinful desires of their hearts, to sexual impurity, for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. They literally created a God for them to worship. So all the plans to build the tabernacle got put on hold. God wasn't coming inside of the camp with them. So so, so what Moses did, he made a tent outside the camp so he could still have a meeting with God. And, And whenever they would meet, a cloud would come down over the tent. And the people would see and they would worship at their own tents. And the Lord would speak to Moses face to face like a friend speaking to a friend. That's what the word said. But I want to draw attention to a conversation that they have inside this tent. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. You have said, I know you by name and you have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me. Now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And God said to him, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. You see, that you isn't you all. See, when they first sinned, God was like, Moses, go get your people. Then he's like, Moses, you go ahead and take them to the promised land. I'm not coming. And now Moses is like, but, but, but wait, aren't me and you on good standing terms? What, what, what about me? And these people are your people. And then God says, I'll go with you specifically, which meant God would keep meeting in a tent outside of the camp. But when Moses went into the camp, the Lord would not go with them. And I want y'all to notice this other part of this conversation, because I want you to notice a change in how Moses continues to communicate. Now, look yeah. at this part. Yeah. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us yeah. up from here. Yeah. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Mm. Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct, I and your people, from every and other every other people on the face of the earth. Come on. Check this out. Part one, Moses seeks to draw God's attention away from the people and focus it on himself on. on behalf of the people. Come on. Ah, follow me. I want y'all to catch patterns. He intentionally says, I and your people twice so that every time God sees him, he sees his people. And every time God sees the people, instead of just seeing their rebellion, he sees Moses. What does this remind you of? Jesus interceding for us. If if we don't see Jesus in this exchange, we miss what's happening. It's setting something bigger up for us. Hallelujah. Oh, I'm going to go there, but, but Moses, he's, he's making this point. He's making this point as he's going through. Here's what he's saying. It's not the promises of God that makes us distinct as a people. It's his presence. 
It's his presence, not this. I, 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 what? Without you? I don't want to go then if it's without you. It's, it's being with you that makes us the people of God, not the gifts and the blessings and the, everything else that comes with it. But it's you. We need to hear this because oftentimes we're, we're more satisfied with the things we feel are his promises and blessings than his presence itself. So the Lord agrees. He agrees to come with his people as planned. And we see God's sovereignty in our prayers. Then Moses is like, Lord, show me your glory. And then there's this incredible experience between God and Moses where the Lord comes, but he hides Moses inside the cleft of the rock so, so Moses isn't crushed by the full weight of his glory. And then God tells Moses, all right, it's back on. Let's remake the tablets that you broke. That, that's important for later. And he gives Moses similar instructions as before. And then he descends and he makes this statement. Now, all right, everything is back on, but then he makes this statement. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions of sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. But wait, I thought, I thought, see, the Lord is setting something up. Even though he forgave them, even though he chose to still dwell with them, they're still guilty and he will have to deal with them. Yeah. And Moses just asked if the Lord could forgive their sins and take them as, as an inheritance for himself. And then the covenant vows are renewed. See, God knows that, 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 that when they eventually enter into the promised land, all, all these things are going to come to pass. And, 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 and this is the same thing for us. You see, we are a missional people in the midst of a culture of idolatry. Yeah. And God knows that that's where they was heading. They, they, they was heading into a sent people, heading into a, a culture rich of idolatry. And he gives them some specific instructions that I want to draw attention to. It's applicable to us today. He says, take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go. Lest it becomes a sneer in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their shirim. For you shall worship no other gods for the Lord whose name is Jealous. It's a jealous God. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods and you are invited, you eat of its sacrifice and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. What is he saying? He's cautioning his people to be careful of cultural idolatry. He says, don't make a covenant with this world of idols. Be careful. It's going to be all around you. Don't make a covenant. As a matter of fact, tear down their altars and system because it will be a snare to you. You're going to be invited into their process of prostituting themselves to their idols. Then he says, don't let their daughters, 
marry your sons. Don't let the daughters of the land marry their sons, your sons. And this is more than just a physical reference. You see, in wisdom literature, like Proverbs, both wisdom and folly are represented by women. Women represents God's covenant. The wisdom represents God's covenant. And folly represents the cultural idolatry. And they use the examples of real women to, to, the, to, to reflect the embodiment of it. So when he says, not to let your sons marry their daughters, the sons represent Israel, and the daughters of the land represent the idols of the culture. And he's saying this, he's saying, if you sleep with the idols of culture, you will conceive sin and give birth to a baby called death. God continues to give them more further instructions. And then Moses eventually came back down the mountain with two new tablets. But the people noticed something different about him. You see, his face was glowing. And every time he came back from meeting with God, his face was glowing again. And I can't just, I can't help thinking about how, how when we are spending time in the presence of God, there should be something different about us when we go back amongst the people. Well, as we get ready for communion... I'm going to go back to chapter 32, verses 30 to 35, because this is a really important thing that happens here. See, Moses continued to pray. He continued to pray. And if you read this verse, he says, Then the next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, these people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sins, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever have sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go and lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit... I will visit their sins upon them. Moses goes up to God and attempts to atone for the sins of the people. He even offers this exchange. It sort of reminds me of Paul when Paul is like, man, if I I could miss out on heaven so that my brothers and my sisters can go. But Moses wants to atone, but, but, but God doesn't accept those terms. 33 starts off with but. It starts off with but. Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my my book. Sorry, Moses, it's not working. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sins upon them. But but, but hold on, I thought we was forgiven. See, Moses wanted to offer up himself as an atonement, but he couldn't. You see, Moses needed somebody to atone for him. He couldn't do it. Moses wasn't good enough. So, 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 did God really change his mind when he decided not to kill them? No, he's still holding them guilty. Did he lie when he said, nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sins upon them? It says the Lord sent a plague, but was that it? No. The Lord would still visit their sins upon them, upon us. It would still mean someone has to die. And the the Lord had an elaborate plan that he was working with. I was trying to connect the dots, but you see, eventually he would send Jesus. 
And like Moses, Jesus would intercede for the people. Lord, when you see me, see them. Lord, when you see them, see me. But unlike Moses, Jesus didn't need someone to atone for him. He was the perfect atonement. So Jesus, you see, he represents Israel. He comes out of Israel. And, 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 and then we, when we give our lives to God, we are joined to Jesus. Yes. Hallelujah. And, and, and it's crazy because we're that stiff-necked people that God could break out and destroy at every moment. But then he chooses to live inside of us. Yes. But does God come back and destroy? He does. To Jesus, who represents us. We are connected to him and God destroys Jesus on the cross. I want to close with John, 1 John 2, 1 to 2. And he says, my dear children, I am writing this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ. The one who is truly righteous, he himself is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. Moses wasn't enough. Not only our sins, but the sins of all the world. Anyone that will repent and come to him will be connected into what Jesus would do on the cross. So as we come to the table today, know atonement has been made for you. The tables are open. Let's break bread and worship. This podcast was recorded at Redemption Alhambra Village in Phoenix, Arizona. For more information about Redemption Alhambra Village, visit redemptionaz.com.